One of the most challenging aspects of the discussion we're about to have today on WYHI is that no matter what the evidence or research shows or even the commitment, the ability to nail down what precisely effective patient and family engagement looks like or should look like in action has a tendency to be kind of fuzzy. That's in a way inevitable as this type of work gains ground and so many are innovating in search of the best models and practices. However, with so many ideas and programs proliferating, there's a kind of now-you-see-it-now-you-don't quality to patient engagement, both in terms of reliability and sometimes it seems optional, as though patient engagement can be considered separate but related from an organization's overall safety and quality improvement agenda. Can the very notion of and recognition associated with something called always events change and offer some direction to these dynamics? Many think so. And that's our topic on this edition of WIHI. And I want to welcome everyone to WIHI, an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. We come to you every other week and later for your listening and convenience via IHI.org, and you can find us on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan. I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. Now, the Always Events program began at the Picker Institute, and now it has a home here at IHI. So it's a matter of ready, set, and relaunch. And we thank you for tuning in to learn more. And for all you Twitterers out there who like to send tweets, please use the hashtag, if you wouldn't mind, uh, IHI in your tweets, and that way we can bring some others into the conversation. IHI's Twitter handle is at the IHI. I'm going to now introduce our guests, and as always, I want to remind you that they have longer bios and all kinds of accomplishments listed on our web pages on IHI um, uh, for the WHI program and also on their own organization's websites. So I'm going to start with our folks on the phone. Uh, actually, I, I'm going to just uh, revise that sentence. Everybody is on the phone today, even some of our close colleagues at IHI. So uh, we're, we're thrilled that we got the whole uh, group of you together. Christina Anderson is the Smart Discharge Project Coordinator at Anne Arundel Medical Center in Annapolis, Maryland. In this position, she works with patients, families, and hospital staff to develop, coordinate, and initiate the SMART process. Now, SMART is an acronym that I'm going to let Tina explain to you. She was hired at Anne Arundel in 2002 as a new graduate nurse on the Joint and Spine Center, and she advanced quickly. Well, we're glad to have you. Welcome, Tina. Welcome. Thank you. All right. Terrific. Sherry Shogren, a nurse executive, is the director of clinical professional development at Unity, excuse me, Unity Point Health in Des Moines, Iowa. She's been in this role since 2006 and oversees clinical education, clinical nurse specialists, and the design and implementation of clinical orientation, online education, competency standards, and simulation training. Welcome, Sherry. Thank you. Terrific. Also on the phone and doing some traveling is IHI's Martha Hayward. Martha is the lead for public and patient engagement at IHI. As a cancer survivor, she served on the Patient and Family Advisory Council of Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston. Her career experience includes over 20 years in marketing and fundraising in the areas of health, politics, and education. Welcome, Martha. Hi, Madge. All right. Good to see you. I hear you. 
And Pat, Pat, <laughs> Pat Rutherford is with us. Uh, she's a vice president at IHI, now overseeing the next phase of IHI's work on person and family-centered care. Pat most recently drove IHI's multi-year initiative known as STAR, focused on reducing avoidable hospital readmissions. Pat's been responsible for managing IHI's clinical office practice redesign, improving access and flow in specialty practices, optimizing care coordination and transitions in care, and you may know Pat from her stewardship of transforming care at the bedside. Welcome, Pat. Thank you, Madge. All right. So we're all here. And as we sometimes like to do, uh, first of all, I want to say we got a tremendous response uh, to today's program today. About 2,000 of you enrolled. Uh, not all of you will probably get on the show live, but I imagine you'll download the show. So we're really thrilled uh, at that response to this topic. And what we're going to do right now, and it kind of moves quickly, we're going to just start off with a very small, short WebEx poll. This is a sort of to wake everybody up and give everyone a sense of the crowd and what familiarity you have with our topic. So John's going to get a slide up here. Uh, and here are the poll questions. Actually, they're listed in the chat. And for people on the phone, uh, you can, if you'd like, um, maybe as we move on from the poll or in the chat itself, you're welcome to just um, you know email us your uh, replies to info at IHI.org. Um, I know there's always a small number of folks who just dial in by phone, so we apologize if you're not able to see this on the screen, but feel free to email info at IHI.org these same answers. So here are your questions. What level of familiarity and experience do you have with always events? That's our topic today. And I came up with A, B, C, D, E, F, and I don't want to take up a lot of time. You can see your options there, and you should check all that apply from I've never heard of always events until now all the way to we've been working on an always event initiative and are not sure it's having that much of an impact and everything in between. So, John, how long will that poll be open? About uh, 10 minutes? Uh, about 10 minutes. That's ten. how long I time. All right. So while you're filling that out, which we hope you can multitask to that extent, please give us some sense of that. I'm going to go right to Pat Rutherford. And Pat, uh, we uh, dragged you out of or uh, sort of uh, got you out of a, um, an R&D meeting today, so we only have you for a few minutes, but really appreciate your giving some frame for our discussion today. And that is kind of a high-level view of the distance we've traveled with patient engagement and person and family-centered care and how to think about always events uh, in that respect in terms of possibly bringing a new and deeper level of commitment and impact. So, Pat, you have the floor. Thank you, Madge. Uh, if I could have the first slide. Um, Here it comes. John? Yep. Okay. Um, uh, welcome, everyone. Uh, this is a very exciting uh uh, uh, body of work that uh, the uh, IHI is engaging in at this point. We uh, just finished uh, this last spring uh, a long strategic uh, planning process looking at what the, the needs are for health and health care and what our strengths were at IHI and came up with uh, five key areas that we're focusing on now. First is cost and quality and value. With value-based purchasing, I think this is a very important uh, body of work that, that everyone is looking at at this point. Patient safety has been longstanding, one of our key uh, content areas. We're continuing to work on that and wanting to build systems of safety in addition to uh, helping individuals um, and, and sites uh, 
improve specific things like pressure ulcers, falls, uh, readmissions, and those things. Uh, triple aim for populations. We have a growing body of work there, um, working with uh, communities, working with uh, states, working with regions, working with different countries on looking at populations and how can we um, uh, uh, join with the community resources as well as the healthcare system to really have a, uh, a big impact on populations. And then in the left-hand bottom corner is the person and family-centered uh, person and family-centered care. Um, um, and uh, can you go back one, John? Uh, person and family-centered care that we're going to be focusing on here today. And then in the middle is improvement capability that is necessary at all levels of every system and every organization to accomplish those uh, four other four uh, key areas. Okay, next slide, John. Thank you. Um, so our goal is to usher in a new era of partnerships between clinicians and individuals where the values, needs, and preferences of the individual are honored, the best evidence is applied, and the shared goal is optimal functional health and quality of life. We put a lot of time into developing that succinct uh, statement of our vision and our goal, and I really love that usher in a new era of partnerships between clinicians and individuals. There's lots of discussions about patient engagement, and I think that's that's absolutely necessary, uh, but I think ultimately we want to get to a point where, where uh, individuals are interacting in the way that they want to in a partnership with their clinicians and staff um, in whatever clinical setting uh, the, that they're encountering. So um, we absolutely do this with uh, people uh, like all of you, and we're hoping to uh, help um, the body of work that's going on now and, and have some impact with getting results. Next slide. Um, Health Affairs put out a, a journal um, version, I think, in the spring, uh, in February of 2013, which was just fabulous. Uh, and I really love what, um, uh, what the, the title of this year, The Blockbuster Drug of Patient Engagement. So that's really a very impactful thought that, you know, really, uh, as Madge said at the beginning, I think for, for many years, I think folks have been thinking of patient satisfaction and, and patient experiences more the amenities and, you know, uh, what the what the hospital or what the clinic looks like and waiting times. But I think it's much more than that, and I think uh, we'll try to shed some light on that today. Um, Through the Patient's Eyes is really, I think, uh, a book um, uh, that was written by the, the picker, uh, Susan Edgman Levitan was one of the lead authors on that through the patient size. And I think that that paradigm still is really what we need to be thinking about. Do we really and are we looking at the experiences and our processes through the experience of patient size? Or are we still really in a clinician staff based system that the, that the processes really are, are geared toward patients? Obviously, we would obviously not be doing anything, uh, that, um, other than that, I mean, that's absolutely what everyone is doing. But I think there's a, there's a higher level, raising the bar to really having, looking at patients' experiences and really listening to what their experience is and really trying to understand exactly what they're going through at any juncture in their healthcare journey uh, and uh, build, building uh, uh, treatments and processes that will really help to make that easier. John? <laughs> we're, we're, I'm sorry, I, I don't have the. You don't have the don't ball. Have the, we're we're in charge. Yes, yeah. So we're we're yeah, you're at our mercy. Okay. <laughs> okay, I'm so sorry, but uh, um, 
uh, healthcare, um, I think everyone knows that healthcare is in transition from sort of our mostly uh, a payer-based um, uh, uh, system to more of a value-based purchasing. And I think that uh, everyone is really tr- struggling with how to get to the future state from where we're at now and how do we make that, how do we make that leap and how do we make, build that bridge to the future state. So leaders that we've been talking to are asking themselves the following questions. How will we navigate the transition from fee-for-service to value-based payment models? And that includes uh, patient experience. In the hospitals, at least now, the uh, HCAP scores are going to be one of the things that uh, uh, organizations are going to be uh, judged on, on uh, in, their, in their value-based uh, payment um, reimbursement. Uh, what skills and capabilities and culture do we need to thrive? And I think that is critically important um, for this area of uh, person and family-centered care. Uh, what new capabilities, what new cultures do we need to um, uh, need to develop in partnership with patients and families to create a new culture where this is really just the way things are all the time? Um, how do we prioritize the many change initiatives that will take to succeed? Uh, we in talking with folks in the field, whether you're in an office practice, a skilled nursing facility, or a hospital, or any other care setting, everyone is really doing a lot of improvement initiatives. And how do they, how do they synergize? How do they prioritize? How do they really uh, make things um, uh, easier to do with with the busy people at the front lines? And last but not least, in the midst of all this change, how do we keep our focus on the people and the individuals that we serve? Uh, and that's critically important. Um, uh, and very relevant for this topic. So what we hear from customers are the following. We're not sure how to align care um, uh, to be more patient family centered. Uh, we in, we're unsure which changes to tackle and, uh, and how to sustain them. And you can read the rest across the top. So many of those, and maybe you have other experiences, but and maybe if you want to put them in a chat, that would be fabulous as well. What's the current state? Maybe you are one of the bright spots. Maybe you've really done terrific work in this area, and your current state is really what we're now putting down in the desired state. Uh, so the desired state is um, we understand the, the needs, preferences, and values of our patients and reliably honor them. So how do we know what those are uniquely? In the STAR initiative, we started asking patients what were they most worried about when they went home, and we got a tremendous amount of information uh, that was not really in the care plan. So I think just asking some simple questions built into daily processes can really make a big difference. We reliably implement high leverage changes and, and contest changes, build competencies, and transform the culture and measure our progress. Staff and physicians understand um, that the patient um, concerns um, uh, saves uh, overall and better support for organizational goals. We understand which HCAPS areas correlate to overall satisfaction, have an action plan to, to address those, and the process is in place to gather immediate feedback from patients and families to test changes for improvement and really understand what changes we're making uh, and the effect they are on the patient's experience. Um, So I'm going to hand it over now to Martha. Um, There's many things that IHI is working on now to uh, learning from other organizations, building uh, our own innovation engine, and uh, coming up with with new and, I think, innovative approaches to many of the things that we we think... uh, uh, sites would like to accomplish in, in terms of uh, improving patient experience. And the Always Events, uh, as Madge has described, um, uh, really is, is meant to create always experiences for patients. And at that point, I'm going to hand it right over to Martha. 
Thank you so much, Pat. Really appreciate your time. All right, Martha, out on the West Coast, and I think you're either in a hotel room or an airport. I'm not even sure, uh, but you're on your cell, and I, I think you're going to come through fine. So um, I guess following on Pat's, um, uh, what, what she just sort of laid out there, is there something about Always Events that, in your mind, lends some new meaning uh, to patient engagement? Do we have this opportunity here to really put something in motion uh, with this framework uh, that can kind of bring this area of work right into the center of what everyone is doing. Thanks, Martha. Yes, and I am in the, um, I, I, I'm at the airport and I've just had a very enthusiastic young child come in to the lounge excited about the Coca-Cola. So if you hear yelling in the background, <laughs> it's all about the Coca-Cola. Okay. Um, yeah, you know, John, the, the, the uh, slide that is always events criteria, if that could come up. I have just, uh, out here on, <clears throat> on the West Coast, I've been with 14 hospitals, um, working with, in a collaboration with 14 hospitals. And <clears throat> we just finished up a session yesterday. And the focus of that session was understanding the why. <clears throat> why are we in the business that we're in? And what's the meaning of our work? We hear a lot about meaningful work. And when we, when we focus our <clears throat> initiatives and our, and our programs on the system or we focus them on the doctors, it simply doesn't make sense. And with all of them, the primary, I'm just taking a sip of water. Okay. Sorry. <clears throat> the primary criteria, <clears throat> I think, really says it all. Because it's about being important and important to who? Being important to patients and families. <clears throat> this is, to me, the most, the, the single thing that distinguishes always events from all the other hundreds and thousands of initiatives that are going out on throughout healthcare in the U.S. <clears throat> By focusing on the patient and family, it's very different to say, well, let me put it this way. A patient or family member is not going to come into a hospital saying, I want teach back. They're going to come into a hospital saying, I want to understand what my doctor is talking to me about. I want to understand what I need to do when I go home. And that, so, the, and then the response will be always is the response to that patient's need. So you create smart discharge because patients need to know when they leave the hospital when they get home. They can actually do what they need to be doing. <clears throat> the, the, the evidence-based, measurable, and affordable evidence-based is very, very important. <clears throat> the always events are either based on existing evidence, and in some situations, they are actually creating the evidence. And this being a new um, area for everybody, this is really advancing the field of patient-centered care. And that brings in the whole question of measurable. <laughs> to change culture, we need to change behaviors. And behavior really is the precursor to culture change. So if we can specify <clears throat> behaviors, then we can measure those behaviors and we can know that our change is having an effect. And most importantly, <laughs> for all the leaders out there, um, is that always events are affordable. They tend to be relational and relationship-oriented. And so there are always changes that are going to have to happen in the system, but 
they're minimal. And the best part is you can start now. These aren't always going to be very simple, and which means that you can get started now. One of the things that I love about all of this is that they really respond to this sense of urgency around changing our culture. There are patients at this very moment, while we're sitting here having this conversation, who are getting less than optimal care, who are confused, who are frightened, and who may be victims of harm or may end up being readmitted because they don't understand what's going on, they're not... Uh, they're not being communicated with properly, or they might just be suffering um, from a feeling of disrespect and confusion. That's unacceptable, and I think everybody in our system knows that it's unacceptable, but always that can address those things today, now, and that's what, that's what needs to happen. So, Martha, I think what I'm going to do, uh, sounds like you're, uh, you could d- drink a gallon of water there. So I apologize if, uh, your, your voice is experiencing a little bit of strain. I'm mindful of time. And, um, what I think I'm going to do, so we can sort of put some meat on the bones here, I'm going to turn to Tina and Sherry to kind of uh, take a look at two programs that have grown up, uh, as uh, Picker got them off the ground, uh, and that we hope to continue to hear about this work. And then I'm going to swing back to you, Martha, where you can tell us a little bit more about the recognition program. Does that sound okay? Perfect. Okay, great. All right, Tina, let me go to you uh, in Annapolis, Maryland. I'm going to start with you. Let's talk a, a bit about uh, the SMART discharge, and of course I promised everyone you would define what that is. Um, and uh, it's really uh, hard to imagine any hospital today that's not trying to improve how patients are discharged to better equip them to manage in the community uh, after an acute care experience. So what's been going on at Anne Arundel uh, that this whole SMART discharge protocol became uh, a really important resource in this uh, area of work? Welcome again. Thanks, Madge. Um, at Anne Arundel Medical Center, we're about a 350 license bed hospital. Um, so we're community-based. Um, we actually can make changes fairly quickly. So it's a huge benefit when it comes to projects like the Always Events grant. Um, what we found, and the reason that we applied for the grant initially, was patients were being sent home from our organization with brief to verbose pages kind of stuffed in that white patient belongings bag along with all of their, you know, dirty clothes and supplies and everything else. And we really felt that there was no standard discharge process, so it was very easy for information to get slipped through the cracks. We didn't have a standard process for our physicians when it came to their computer documentation or what ultimately led to the discharge instructions for the patient. Um, And we also had poor med rec um, compliance, which I'm sure a lot of people are facing, in addition to a lack of coordination during the hospitalization for the patient um, so that they were really aware of what was going on and kind of started the education around discharge earlier. So that's really what prompted us to apply for the Always Events in the first place. Okay, so what what is it that you have developed? Sure. So, um, and actually, I don't know who's control. Is John still in control yeah. of the slide? Yeah, he's still in the room. <laughs> we don't let him go. <laughs> okay. <laughs> 
So um, what we proposed was basically a framework to our discharge process to ensure that five key areas were addressed both during hospitalization and at discharge. We wanted something that was easy to remember. We wanted something that could be universally applied, so fairly generic. It could be applied to any area throughout the hospital. And our leadership team came up with uh, an acronym called SMART, which stands for Symptoms, Meds, Appointments, Results, and Talk. So basically, our emphasis here is that no patient would leave the organization without these key pieces of information. And we did verify with our patient family advisors and in some other focus groups that these are um, very important to them to know when they leave. So it wasn't that we just made them up and said, this is what we're going with. We, we did verify with patients and families that this was important and probably number one on that list is the medications, as you could probably guess. So what we developed was using this framework, um, we basically created a system in our organization um, throughout our culture. So there's um, information throughout the room. Thank you very much for that. <laughs> throughout the room, um, we have smart language, asking patients and families, do they know about those five things, prompting them to ask us, prompting our staff to um, discuss those things with their patient and families. But most importantly, um, we've created uh, more of a standardized discharge process using SMART as the framework. So we've reformatted our discharge instructions into that SMART framework. We've um, worked with our IS team to really get um, an easier way for doctors to um, go through the process and, and not meet, miss any of these key critical areas. We've also put some hard stops on med reconciliation um, so that really we can't even print the discharge instructions without the physician going through every single medication. Um, and then, again, we've just worked with our patient family advisors throughout that process as far as the language is concerned, the education. We've really just, we had four uh, patient family advisors that for the first year worked with us every other week for an entire year to really get this project going. Um, as you can see on this slide, um, we held focus groups. We piloted the program and parts of it on a couple different units before spreading it out to all of our inpatient areas. Um, in addition, we didn't mention here, but we had no patient access to their medical record um, prior to this grant. And <coughs> year one, we actually were able to give them 100% of patients now have access to their MyChart after discharge, which is our patient portal um, for our com um, computer system so that they have access to their discharge instructions and other information once they leave the hospital, labs, tests, um, that sort of thing. All right. And then, I, yeah, go ahead. Let's so, so, so sort of give us the thumbnail of where are you now. Sure. Um, so where are we now? Um, we have a lot of the cultural pieces in place, both through documentation and physical, um, with the patient whiteboards in the rooms. We did implement that standard discharge process, which I will um, very proudly say that we've gone from an abysmal number to 98% um, compliance at discharge. And then um, we've also instituted other 
um, we like to call them smart initiatives that really lead to this um, discharge process, such as interdisciplinary and geographic rounding. We've really implemented that throughout the organization. And then, as I mentioned, uh, we have 100% of our patients are do have access to their electronic, electronic medical record. All right. Uh, terrific. Thank you. Well, I can already see uh, questions are going to come piling in, so don't go anywhere. Uh, thank you, um, for Tina, for that. It really is just a snapshot, as, a, as everyone knows on W. WHI, we try and give you a flavor of some really interesting things going on. And in this case, we're trying to show you some examples. And I did chat in, uh, there is a smart discharge protocol tool that's now up on the Always Events uh, webpage on IHI.org, and I chatted that in. And if you're looking for that, again, you can email info at IHI.org. And don't forget, everything will be on the website tomorrow with all our resources. Uh, thanks, Tina. All right, we're going to go right to Sherry. But first, I want John uh, to uh, tell us about the poll and uh, what the results were. Um, if we can, I'm, I'm still looking at the questions, so maybe I'm looking at the wrong thing. Until today's WHI, 45% of us uh, or of you have not had not heard of Always Events, um, and 21% uh, were familiar with the work that the Picker Institute started, um, but there's no program like it at their organization. So that really top-heavy with those two results, um, and um, Madge, you can break down the rest of it. Okay, very, very good. Well, I want to just, I'm going to leave it there, and again, because I want to move on uh, to Sherry uh, as far as uh, just uh, making sure that we get everything in here. The poll seems to suggest that the lion's share of you have never heard of it. Um, folks have also responded and said, you know, I'm familiar, but there's no program like it in my organization. Um, I one, The one result that I am intrigued with is about 195 of you said we've been working on an Always Event initiative and are not sure it's having that much of an impact. I think that's a really interesting finding, and I think it goes to some of the things that Pat and Martha were both talking about, about uh, getting at measurement and really trying to figure out when are changes, real improvements, and making a difference in this patient and family-centered sphere. So thanks for taking part in that poll. All right, I'm going to, just before we go to chat then, uh, Sherry Shogren, uh, who is going to uh, talk to us about what's been going on with Teach Back at Unity Point. That's formerly the Iowa Health System. Uh, Unity Point now extends a bit outside of Iowa, hence uh, in part the name change. Sherry, uh, talk to us about what's been going on at Teach Back, which I think folks will be quite interested in, and welcome again. Thanks a lot, Madge. Um, well, most of us are probably aware of what Teach Back is, but essentially it's a research-based health literacy intervention that we can use as clinicians to ensure that we've explained to our patients and completed patient education in a way that that our patients fully understand and they can repeat back to us in their own words what they need to know. Um, and our history here at Unity Point Health is that uh, we came together um, as a system about 10 or 12 years ago as the Iowa Health System, and uh, our vision is best outcome for every patient every time, and that provides the guidance for our care across our system that is now eight large in Iowa and Illinois geographic regions, and there are about 25,000 employees, including home care experts, hospital teams, and more than 3,500 physicians and specialists. And it was through the leadership at our Center for Clinical Transformation that and the Always Event Grant Initiative that our Teach Back Training Toolkit became a reality. 
And as you can see on the slide, um, you know, that's an online training tool. But this initiative uh, really addressed four elements. It had an element of patient and family partnership. It includes a lot of staff engagement. It shows the criticality for leadership engagement and involvement, as well as we uh, included measurement and improvement uh, as part of that. And as the slides indicate, it has uh, ramifications for application across the continuum. For the creation of the Always Event Grant, uh, the new readers of Iowa and other lay community members uh, helped the grant team through me meetings and intensive work sessions to develop the elements of the online toolkit. And this includes some interactive videos of patients working with their clinicians. Um, it included creation of teach-back printed materials for the tools in the toolkit, and then some language development for the online curriculum. So the toolkit essentially provides a variety of tools and videos for staff education, coaches, and leaders to support competence development of our staff with the use of TeachBack. Um, our system uh, clinical nurse executives have been a key initiative uh, and key motivation for keeping this initiative in the forefront. And they provided time for staff to participate and are currently very engaged with driving the spread and the sustainability agenda around this. Um, we had executives from clinics, home care, and the hospital identify pilot locations. And it was at these pilot locations that we did some observations and testing and uh, provided leadership for the mid-level managers. Um, the strong executive support for the consistent use of TeachBack led to the decision to make sure that our managers and our unit leadership were engaged and involved in the coaching activities and responsibilities that are a huge part of, of this rollout. Sustainment efforts have included the on-site coaching to support building of the habit of patient teaching with use of TeachBack. Uh, coach and peer training occurs, and it includes the evidence of an completion of an online teach-back modules that we have in our learning management systems. And there's also some face-to-face -face roundtables with that. Managers are then accountable after the staff training to assure that all staff are validated in the competent use of teach-back, and that's currently being done through real-time observations of staff actually doing patient education. Um, our baseline uh, data collection for the Teach Back initiative included these observations that I talked about of nurses and physicians in these three patient care settings, and then it also included some patient surveys and responses to their patient education and uh, to show us whether TeachBack was effective. There was some online data collection through our electronic medical record that we used to capture whether the patients or the family members had that TeachBack incorporated into their teaching. And it was from this data collection that we learned that there was really an inconsistent use of TeachBack. It was kind of the typical 80-20 rule in the sense that 80% of the staff thought that they were using TeachBack, but when we really went to the observations and, and you know, did the competency check on them, uh, which is included in the toolkit, by the way, we found out that really it was reversed, that probably about 20% truly used the TeachBack, and 80% of our staff really needed that, that extra support and, and knowledge around that. As far as our system spread, because we are a rather large system, that's being managed regionally, and it's supervised by the individual church, uh, chief nurse executives as well as the regional health literacy teams. And I happen to work in an acute care setting, and our goal with this is that we identified in our charter uh, 
a goal of improving top box scores for each of the health literacy-related HCAP domains. And we're hoping by the end of the year um, we're going to start see some increase in those those scores that we've gotten. Um, specific questions we're looking at would be things like communication with nurses, communication with doctors, and, of course, communication about medicines and then the discharge um, information. So some of the same things, actually, that would come through with the SMART uh, Smart Toolkit. Um, so we hope to see that change. The slide that you're seeing now that John has put up uh, shows that we managed to put a little bit of fun into all of this. Um, the Teach Back efforts followed a KISS initiative. So uh, one of those persons is supposedly dressed as a chocolate KISS, but the acronym for KISS was Keep It Simple Staff, and which is part of the plain language, which is essential for Teach Back. So staff got a chocolate KISS candy as awards, and then we ha- had staff nominated for a KISS award. We followed with that same theme with Teach Back, and I'm there supposedly dressed as an apple. It's convincing. It's pretty convincing. What? It's pretty convincing. You think it's pretty convincing? Uh, Don't you love the stem on the top? (laughs) But anyway, the idea of apples being associated with teachers and the thought that an apple a day keeps the doctor away. So we've had some fun handing out sour apple candies and business cards with Teach Back slogans. Our cafeterias featured... Um, teach back foods, which contained apples, of course, in them in the cafeteria. And uh, again, staff were nominated for some teach back awards. And it's been really fun to see the different staff, uh, respiratory therapists, physicians, social workers, and not just nurses, of course, that have been included in that. So uh, it, what's really interesting and probably one of the most humorous examples is uh, we're now in our budget time here, as I'm sure many of you are as well. And when we did our finance classes for for our, our online budget tool, our finance director used TeachBack and actually had that on one of his slides to make sure that we as leaders were able to teach back what we needed to do with the budget. So uh, we think it works. Um, we've managed to have some, some, some fun with the whole process, and we're finishing up our competency assessment of our staff uh, this month and uh, anticipating some, um, some changes and some great improvement in our scores as a result of this. So. Terrific. Okay, thank you so much, uh, Sherry. Really, I do love that Apple uh, costume. And I, I I think about, I mean, fun is important, and I also think um, the, all this um, very interesting. It's it's kind of one of the most developed um, uses of Teach Back that I've been aware of, and I think it's a, a fun, it's a really terrific example. All right, I did promise we're going to go to chat, and I do see comments, but I'm going to go back to Martha, who's been resting her voice. And Martha, in two minutes, because I want to tell everyone something. We are in the process, you could call this kind of a soft launch. We are relaunching Always Events and a recognition program. If you go to the area of our website, and I'll ask John uh, or somebody here in the studio just to remind people where you can see that on IHI.org, you're going to slowly see uh, well, there's some resources there now. Uh, these are all going to get built out. You can see applications here. Uh, you can and also on that webpage, uh, you're going to find a way to go back in somewhat in time to all the resources that the Picker Institute posted uh, about the terrific organizations you're hearing from today. So there's a history to this work. We're giving you kind of a snapshot. We hope to be able to tell you more about what they're doing going forward and what more of you are doing. And so, Martha, can you do the two-minute version uh, about the recognition program? Thanks. 
Well, and this is particularly to those 189 people who say that they uh, are working on always the notes and aren't sure they're having effect. Actually, I have, to, the, I have to stand corrected on that. Somebody, I can't, uh, I, I misunderstood what that, that was actually a no reply. So uh, my bad, okay. I, I misunderstood that. But that, that doesn't mean that some folks out there aren't having some <laughs> concerns. Go ahead. <laughs> Well, and the people who are involved in uh, uh, Always Events, this is particularly to you and those who want to engage in an Always Event, we are continuing the recognition program, and um, the applications um, can uh, will have an application process in the fall and in the spring. I think our dates are October 15th and April 13th. It's a real opportunity for people to put your events in front of us through the application process so that they can be recognized by each IHI, validated, and you can bring that back to your management and leadership, I think the recognition program is all part of spread and sustainability, um, that it has that validation and that the work that you're doing has meaning. Okay. So we invite people um, to look for the recognition application and for the do-it-yourself guide. Okay. Thank you. Right. The do-it-yourself guide, which is coming very, very shortly and a lot of effort going into this, and uh, we hope you'll uh, stay tuned for more information. Okay. Very quickly, uh, John, remind people about the chat, and I want to make a promise and a pledge to everyone, um, which is because uh, getting out all this material today took a little longer than anticipated. Uh, any remaining questions, we'll make sure that uh, they do get answered, and we'll get back to you on uh, anything outstanding, and perhaps as things go up on the website here, uh, you'll get some of your questions answered as well. So, John, very quickly. Yeah, just a quick reminder, if you're going to ask a question or comment um, in the chat, make sure that you change your send to bar to all participants. That allows everybody to see your questions and comments, as well as everybody uh, listening in and watching on the WebEx. All right, sounds good. All right, so we've been, um, I'm looking at some of the folks and what people are asking, so thank you all who corrected my spelling and uh, other, um, <laughs> anything else that was at all confusing. Um, so let me see, is there a discharge coordinator? This is for you, Tina. For each unit, when does the discharge coordinator start to follow the patient on admission? Uh, or at which what point during the patient's stay? So some questions about sort of when the process gets triggered and and who's involved. Tina. Sure. Um, we we don't have a discharge coordinator specifically for each unit. Um, they really are assigned a certain number of patients. However, most I can tell you most of the patients in our organization, especially on the adult inpatient side, um, they are followed by a coordinator. So the discharge coordinator is present during all of the rounds, and they um, start basically on admission or not soon thereafter. Um, we do enter a consult for the discharge coordinator in our computerized system. And as far as I see the other question about the data for reducing uh, readmissions, we just recently really took this program to more of a housewide. So we don't have any data initially, but we do anticipate to, um, it to decrease or be one of the mechanisms um, that helps our readmission rate decrease. We'll also be following some HCAP scores specifically around discharge. Some of the newer questions this year, I don't know how familiar everybody is with them, 
um, really pertain directly to uh, what we're hoping to accomplish with this. They're, you know, the patient's understanding of the medications that they're on at discharge and that and so forth. So um, I hope I answered the question about the discharge coordinator. Sure. And a couple questions for you, uh, people's uh, ears perked up about whiteboards. Could you say a little bit more about that, patient whiteboards? Sure. Um, so our patient whiteboards were designed with our patient family advisory group. And because I'm not familiar with what everybody else is using, but we basically had a very simplistic, um, you know, dry erase board in our patient rooms. And so the nurse would go in and she would just write, you know, her name and number and maybe the text name and number on the board. Um, but that's really all the information that was on there. And the patients and families said, you know what, we need a little bit more kind of like a plan for the day so that if the family member were to walk in or, um, you know, really anybody, they could kind of see what's going on today, what are the goals, uh, that sort of thing. And so they developed a a larger board that with some pre-printed sections that the staff then would be responsible for filling in each day. Um, and those are really just, they are very new. They actually just went up in July. Um, and SMART is on there, but it's not really a section to be filled out. It's more of a do you know about to kind of prompt the conversation. Um, we went back and forth about what to do with that. Initially, we had it out um, as sections for staff to fill in, but there was a lot of discussion as to whether, you know, is there going to be confidential information up there that the patient doesn't want, and um, it kind of became a duplication of work from the discharge instructions and other areas, um, and so it was ultimately decided just to leave it there as a prompt for the patient and the staff. Okay. I actually am going to just, there's a couple questions about folks wondering about um, whether or not this, what what we're talking about, uh, Tina and I would suspect also uh, in terms of teach back is applicable uh, outside the hospital setting. I think both of you have um, meant to, to sort of suggest that. And actually, I think uh, at some point somebody here is saying, well, we need to see more examples of some of this work in primary care. And that's, I'm sure, what the team here is hoping we'll uh, learn more about as you get more involved in always events at IHI. But um, let me uh, first, I think, go to uh, Sherry and ask about uh, sort of uh, teach back. You did describe the Iowa Health, excuse me, Unity Point as, a, you know, a broad-based system. Uh, but and any sort of fine points to talk about uh, with, re uh, with respect to the office practice versus the hospital side? Uh, yes, we definitely did include um, uh, home care as well as primary care clinics in our education for staff and the assessment of competencies. Uh, when we, when I mentioned that we rolled it out from a region, when we think of regions in our sense, it involves uh, all three of those acute care setting, home care, and clinics. And it's really provided a nice way for us to collaborate across the continuum as we've kind of worked together in our regions to do the staff education and even even doing the observations of physicians using teach back in the clinics. Okay, thank you very much. Yeah, Madge, Go Madge ahead, ju jump in, Martha. Yeah. yeah, the application of all of these things, because they tend to be um, uh, communication-based, they're applicable in all communication situations. Communication um, is something that we take for granted, but in fact it's a discipline and it can be taught and it can be practiced. Um, and most of the always events are around proper communication 
And and not being too silly, one nurse told me she finds it really effective dealing with her two teenage sons when she gives them instructions on what she needs them to do when she's at work. Right. (laughs) Okay. Well, Martha, let me ask you a very quick question. Somebody has uh, repeated this in twice, so I know uh, he or she definitely wants me to ask this question. Uh, In some ways, this uh, individual is suggesting if we, since always events was uh, conceived of at some level uh, as a play on never events, um, you know, serious reportable events, things we absolutely never want to happen, this person is asking, well, if we can make good on never events and have those never events never happen, have we achieved always events? That could be thought of as a sort of philosophical question, but um, what would you say in response to that? I would say the person is asking an excellent question, and I think that there, you know, there's been talk about creating nationwide always events. Maybe it would be one to five. Um, that would be always events that would make our systems reliable. Um, and then <clears throat> always events that are very specific to your environment. What we know is that always events always, um, if done reliably, always affect the culture and move it toward a more patient-centered culture. Pat is uh, actually thrilled to see that Pat's, uh, able to was able to hang in there. So, Pat, what would you say to that? Well, I think uh, the the never events were uh, were uh, mostly, um, I believe, all of them safety uh, things that were really the intent was to get them to zero. Uh, you know, ventilator, acquired pneumonias, pressure ulcers, falls, many other things in those never events. The, the, it was, I think, an, uh, uh, I think the Picker Institute and the people um, that that worked on this and did some of the initial thinking on this, really wanted something that would always happen, and it was always experiences. So I think that really, you know, I think um, think about this more as from the patient's perspective and the patient's vantage point, really what we're trying to do is do a cadre of always events in any clinical setting. Could be, you know, as, as described, uh, home care, the, the plane tree or organization is working on always events in skilled nursing facilities. I think that the concepts are equally applicable in clinical office practices, specialty practices, as well as the hospital setting. So the intent here is to partner with patients, as Martha said. The the real magic in this or the real power in this is to get a number of patients and family members who regularly receive care in whatever the clinical setting is and sit down with them and hear their stories, hear their experiences, what? Did we lose you there? Oh. Whoops, Pat. We may something. Pat, we may be. Something. I I think Pat, you're breaking up. Are you are you there? I am here. Okay, sorry for a moment uh, there. I'm not quite sure what happened. So just back up one sentence. <laughs> okay. Oh gosh. Yeah. That, uh, okay. Back the, up one sentence. The point. The, 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 the power the, of yeah. the, the power. Uh, the power of this is really getting patients and families that have received care in whatever clinical setting and are regular uh, uh, receivers of care in that clinical setting, and to to hear their stories of their experiences, the, the whole everything. You know, everything from you know when they went home from the hospital and how they uh, were at home to what they experienced in the ED and the operating room, uh, ICUs, med surgeons, whatever, whatever their experience was, and really hear about what you might not have picked up in the busyness of the everyday activities in, in whatever, the office practice or the 
whatever the clinical setting is. And the power is to, is to extract from that what didn't go so well for them and what would their wishes be. Uh, if we as an organization could promise patients and families something, what would they want? And it really, the power of this is coming from the patients and the family members. And then in partnership with the, the team, the clinical team and the quality improvement team that's going to be working on this, then they test it in one site, uh, one office practice, you know, one clinical setting, one uh, area of a skilled nursing home, one, you know, uh, nurse working in, in home health, and works on that and, and tests and refines it and gets it to a point similar to what you've heard uh, about uh, always use teach back in the smart discharge tool. That started and was tested iteratively, and I'm assuming the patients and families were involved in that as well. And once it gets to a point at which it really is working in that setting, then is the hard work of getting it reliably implemented everywhere. So we don't want these to be sometimes events. We want them to be always events. And so we're aiming for 100%. So that's really the, the difference in these. This is something that is uh, not mandated by you know regulations or safety or things. Those are all very, very important and certainly affect patient experience. These are more about the the the... the the holistic approach and, and how were they treated. It's more the organic relationship work, I think, that Martha's described. Thanks, Pat. Um, and if there is a particular reference to the skilled nursing facility uh, you were mentioning, uh, feel free to chat that in or we can follow up with that person. There's also a question about somebody wondering about the whiteboard format and tool. Why don't you uh, look for that in our resource document that we'll post uh, by tomorrow morning. We'll see if we can get that for you. Um, Madge, yeah, go ahead. Madge, can I just jump in here? Um, yeah. I, I just like to add a little bit uh, to what's uh, already been described about the whiteboards and transforming care at the bedside. Was this was one of the early in- innovations that we developed, and the the teams that had the most success success actually started with it, just a piece of paper or a plain whiteboard, and then iteratively found out what works and enhancing communications between the care team and the patient and the family members at the bedside. So what they did was they sort of put categories there that they thought, both the patient advisors and the the clinicians, what they thought should be on there. And in most cases, it was revised many, many times before they came up with the uh, final one that they sometimes got laminated or got some kind of fancy, you know, whiteboard that had all the categories and everything spelled out. But I would encourage you to look at some of the ones, uh, and we have some in, um, uh, we can send resources both from TCAB and from our work in STAR on the discharge preparations. Uh, we'll send those links uh, to those, those resources as well. And, um, and, but I think those that had the most success started out iteratively changed and got feedback from patients and families. And after, after they reached you know, consensus about that, then they change it. And likely to be different on medical units and surgical units and maybe even ICUs. So the context is probably important as well. So one size may not fit all for your entire organization. Thank you very much, Pat. Well, here's what I'm going to say. Uh, as moderator, this is my job. I see a lot of very, very good and valuable questions. Uh, a question about uh, whether we're using the notion of patient engagement and patient and family centered care interchangeably. There are a lot more questions I can see about the use of the discharge, uh, trying to uh, offer patients realistic expectations uh, in their discharge, uh, in the discharge process in terms of how they're 
they're going to feel uh, after uh, they go home, how to prepare families uh, better. Um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to wrap this up. Feel free, any of you, including my guests, uh, panelists here, if you want to uh, chat in any responses to some of these questions that I think are directed to you, and then we will make sure uh, that these answers also get uh, it get to our audience today. You've been a fabulous uh, audience, and um, I think what we, t- we are trying to do here is uh, kind of remind everybody of this space at work uh, of work, and hopefully you are all, many of you who are contributing today or our audience will be part of uh, who will be talking about going forward. I want to give a big shout out uh, to our uh, guests uh, from Anna Arundel and Unity Point today. Uh, Tina and Sherry, you did a ma- marvelous job. Martha, on the fly there, literally, or not quite on the fly, but on the ground, about to be on the fly. And Pat, thanks for taking some time out of your meeting. Big uh, thank you to our audience as well. Uh, we have a discussion that continues after the show on IHI's Facebook page, uh, so check that out as well. Next up on WIHI on October 10th, it's all related, we have a program on new staffing models for primary care. We're going to hear about the kind of midway point on a really interesting initiative uh, called Leap. That webpage is now live, and you could go check it out and enroll. When you log off the program today, you can download the chat, all the slides that you saw, um, and we would very much appreciate your filling out uh, a brief survey. One of the things we're trying to determine, uh, in addition to asking at the top of the show your familiarity with Always Events, we are trying to find out if you would like more uh, programming uh, from IHI in this space, uh, and you're answering the survey, that part of the survey in particular would really help us out a lot. You can always check out the archive pages of uh, WHI for previous programs. Any questions whatsoever, info at IHI.org. So who makes WHI possible? Well, the people, in those those individuals include Mike Sweeney, Jameson Case, Jesse McCall, Alan Olison, Vicki Minden, John Gothier, Jane Rossner, Val Weber, and Matt Morse. And we have a wonderful Northeastern co-op, Stephanie Moncayo. We hope you enjoy the music that opens and closes WYHI. As always, it's my privilege to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving patient care and health most of all. For the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, I'm Madge Kaplan. Good day, everyone. <laughs>